We begin today uh, by continuing to uh, look at what is typically called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but as we saw last week, this is truly not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. He himself could not have prayed this prayer because about two-thirds of the way through, it says, forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass or sin against us. And Christ was sinless. Therefore, he was saying, this is how you pray. And, and he prayed frequently. So when we look at Christ, and they're probably the reason that they asked him to pray in the first place, is they, they recognized that they, they, like us, had a certain limit to capacity. I don't know about you, but I, I'm attracted to people that go beyond normal capacity in life. It could be an athlete, it could be a, a, an Olympian, it could be a, a musician, an actor, you know, those people that, man, they just seem to, they can run faster, jump higher, and do, do the things that are so beyond what our normal capacity is. Now, when it comes to athletics, it doesn't take a lot for me to see people that are, you know, past my capacity. I'm sure you recognize the name LeBron James. He's a great NBA basketball player. And I've seen him over the years, as you have, if you follow the game, make some amazing plays. And uh, But just this, a couple of weeks ago, I saw this, this YouTube clip that um, uh, where after a practice, he was going to try to make a full court shot, not a half court shot, a full court shot. And uh, somebody captured it on probably their iPhone or something. And I And when I see this, I'm like, wow, that's just beyond the capacity of even what the greats can do. So I brought it in for you. I want I want you to take a look. I did it for you twice because you got to see it again, right? Man. I don't know. I sat there and watched it 30 times. And I never got tired of it. Like he's going to miss it again or something. That's the same deal. Well, maybe he'll miss it this time. It's just over. And I was like, just the thrill of it. And then when I'm around people like that, that can run faster, throw longer, sing higher, all those things, what happens is that I just come into this stark reality of my own limitations. Now, I play a bit of basketball. I hit the underside of the hoop more than I do actually get it in. And I just feel so normal. I feel so regular. I feel like oh, my, my capacity is so limited. And it happens all through life. There are times in our job and relationships, whatever that may be, that we think, ah, oh, man, I've reached the level. I've maxed out. And those are not moments that are pleasant. They can happen physically. They can happen spiritually, they can happen emotionally, intellectually, we're going to look at some of those. When we've reached a point in our lives that we feel that we have, we have touched the limitation, the outer limitation of our human capacity, there are two things that will happen. We will either pose or we will confess. We'll act like we haven't reach that capacity. We'll just keep going as if nothing's happening and try to fake a move as, as if, oh, no, we're fine. Or we'll say, I'm out. I reached my limit and I don't mind saying it. When I look at those 
A players in the Bible, true for the B players, the people that are not so well known. But when I look at all the A players in the Bible, you know, the Moseses, the Abraham, the David, Peter, name one, Gideon. These are the guys that at one point or other, they reached a maximum of their human capacity and God put them there. I'm thinking of a guy like David who came up against a guy named Goliath who was two to three times the size that he was. David was the runt of the pack. And in that moment, he must have thought, this is is a capacity moment. Or Gideon, who was faced with an uncountable army. Or Moses, who was chosen to lead a nation, as we're going to see today. Or Peter, who we're told was an, an educated man, and yet he was going to be the spokesman to the entire non-Jewish world. In those moments they must have said. I don't believe that I can do this. I don't believe that I have the capacity. To do what God has asked me to do. Again it happens in everyday life. There's sometimes that we're in our jobs. And we think I, I, you know I've reached a level here. That now I'm, I'm nervous. I can't do it. My father was a draftsman. He worked at the same place for 40 years. And if you know software, uh, architectural software, it's called the CAD system. And my dad worried the last five years of his life because he was not a software computer type guy. He was old school. And he worried every, almost every day of his life that they're going to make me uh, learn the CAD system. And it was just, you could tell that he had reached that human capacity like these guys in the Bible that do so often. So now we come to a guy like Moses, and I'm just going to pick him, could have picked anyone in the scripture, really. You're going to look at a guy like Moses, and the thing I like about Moses that we're going to see over and over today is his honesty. He wasn't willing to hide the limitations of his capacity. He wasn't really willing to fake a move. You remember right from the beginning, see, he had been out in the back 40 for a number of years just watching sheep, being a, being a herder, being a shepherd, and then God tapped him with a promotion. Instead of being a shepherder or a herder, uh, he, he now is going to kind of be the CEO of a nation. And not a small nation, by the way. When you look at the size of what he was up against, the, 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 it seemed insurmountable. And you might remember right from the beginning, Moses said, you picked the wrong guy. I'm not going to try to fake it like I can, I, I, I can do this job. You, God, get somebody else. Get my brother. I, you, you've put me in a position that is way past my capacity. And when you think about the nation that he led, because the nation, if you know the story, the nation was imprisoned, enslaved in the, in the, in the country of Egypt, the, the Israelites were. When you think about that scenario, you think, well, how many people were we talking about here? Because God said, Moses, you're going to actually be the vanguard, the spearhead that's going to lead them out of this nation. And when you look at the numbers, they must have been overwhelming. In fact, we begin today in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is uh, part of the, the, uh, the trek, the early part of the trek of the Israelites as they're exiting Egypt. They're about ready to see some amazing things, but what we're, we're given an inventory number. We're going to talk a lot, about, a, a, a lot of numbers today, stunning numbers. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 37, here's what we find. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot. These would have been the foot soldiers, so to speak. 
Now, let me remind you, if you know anything about the Old Testament, this would not have involved the entire tribe of the Levites because they were not fighters. They were not soldiers. You have to be 20 years old to be a soldier to be counted in the 600,000. So this doesn't count graduating seniors in the 600,000 figure. And then he says on top of that, now and, and we have 600,000 foot soldiers besides women and children. Well, if you start doing the math, and, and things are like they are now, which they were, biologically speaking, they're probably about as number of women as there were men. And these, uh, so there, you could say, well, maybe there were 600,000 women, probably more, because this was just a segment of, of the culture. So there were more than that. Then you had women, then you had children. Some people probably had one child, some had two, three, some people had eight. A lot, they were, they were making a lot of babies in the Old Testament, if you haven't read it a lot. And so there are a lot of children. We don't know uh, how many there were, plus the Levites. On top of that, what comes as a surprise to most people, it just wasn't the nation of Israel. Other people joined them, and I want you to file that because we're going to come back to it in verse 38. Watch. Not some other people or a little number of people, but many other people that were not Israelites. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock. Now, I don't know how much livestock is in a drove, but it sounds like a lot to me. It sounds like bigger than a beehive. But when it looks like droves, that just sounds like a big word, doesn't it? So you got all these people, but then you got this massive amount of cattle and sheep because we're told they're flocks and herds. Now, people that study these types of numbers on a conservative level say that there were probably two to two and a half million people on an upper side. They they think maybe five million people because we don't know how many people went with them. We don't know actually, actually how many children there were. Not counting animals, by the way. Two two and a half. So let's go with two and a half million people. Someone told me after the first service. I said this is a big uh, job for a new CEO. You're going to have two hundred and fifty or two two point five million people you're taking care of. Someone told me afterwards. You know the largest employee of the world. You know who that is. Walmart, that's right, 2.1 million employees. So this guy is leading something larger than Walmart. Oh, that's a big company. It's a new job. First day on the job, Moses is like, whoa, you have reached my capacity. So what happens in life when you find yourself maxed out? When things don't make sense intellectually, you can't figure it. You can't, as we would say, wrap your mind around. Why did you pick me? Why am I in this circumstance? Why is this happening? How many times have we ask that as human beings? A lot. And the reason is because see, we're on the field of play. We can't figure all things out. There are times where we feel like we're maxed out of emotional capacity. Like I, as I've said before, the old Popeye line, I can't stand it no more. I'm over the top. I say my kids know when dad's getting there. And they, they flee like little bugs when you cut on the lights. You know, dad's getting the maximum emotional capacity. And there's sometimes we have spiritual capacity that we reach. What do we do when we reach that moment? We're going to see what Moses did to teach us what we should do. But Christ taught us in this disciple prayer. Last week, we began with the words, two words, our father, and we broke those down. Each word spent quite a bit of time. 
Now we move to a critical piece, and I'll remind you that Christ was teaching the components of what should be in prayer. He did not teach us this prayer to say it by rote, as we often do. He's saying, when you're going to prayer, here's how you pray. Here are some of the things that you would include. And he says, he begins the prayer, our Father, and to the key of the entire equation today, what do you do when you're maxed? You begin by framing the prayer by this. Who art in heaven. I'm using the old English because the, uh, we, we learn the prayer this way. Our Father who art in heaven, right? We reach a point in our prayer and we begin by prayer of saying, God, let me frame something here. I'm down here. You're up there. And not only is that a good thing, but it is a critical thing. We need to be God to be above us. You remember if you've, if, when you uh, ever watch an NFL football game, the offensive coordinator is not sitting on the sidelines where the action is. The offensive coordinator is not in the first few rows. The offensive coordinator is sitting at the highest seat of the stadium. He is way up in the booth because when you're way up in the booth, you be, you're able to see things that when you're on the field, you're completely miss, including the quarterback who has a little speaker in his headphone getting messages from the guy up top because his view is limited. You see, when we pray our Father who art in heaven, it should be that we could insert a word, our Father who thankfully art in heaven. Ask any soldier in the military and they will always tell you that the high ground is the advantage, not the low ground. I love that that show Cops. I don't, I don't know why, but, you know, there's just something about it I really dig. And and so, you know, when the guy is, the criminal is fleeing and, you know, on foot, you know what they do, right? They break out the choppers with that big spotlight, right? And it's falling. And I'm like, where does this guy think he's going to go? You know, because they got the advantage of that big spotlight. And then the guy like runs behind a bush. I'm like, you're a moron. There's, there's no, you know, maybe a parking garage or something, but you know, they're, they're right over top of them because there's a different view. You see, we begin today by asking the question, what happens when we reach our maximum capacity? And we will not find the answer in one another who equally have limited capacity, we must find a reality that transcends the human realm. In other words, we need to go to the upper floor. We need to go to the booth because of the view that we have. God reminds us in Isaiah 55, these words, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. I have a different view on life. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Now watch the distinction as the heavens are higher than the earth. And that's quite a bit of distance if you didn't notice. We're not remotely close to how God thinks. We're not even an, uh, 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 within light years. He's saying as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I heard uh, uh, this this little uh, incident where a, I, uh, a joke about a guy who asked God, he said, Hey, God, I, I got a question for you. Uh, you're, you're, you're so much higher than we are. A million years. What's a million years like to you, God? And he said, Oh, a million. God's a million years. It's like a second. 
And the guy said, huh, all right. He started to think, how about a million dollars? How much is a million dollars to you, God? God was like, a million dollars? It's like a penny to me. So the guy's will started turning. He goes, hmm, hey, God, can you spare a penny? And God said, you got a second? It works both ways. Some of you are like, I don't get it. You'll get it on the way home, whatever. His ways are always higher. So here comes Moses, and he can't quite wrap his head around what's about to happen. We're going to hover today. Sometimes we jump around, but we're going to hover. So if you have your Bibles or your iPad or your iPhone or whatnot, and you want to hover with us, otherwise it'll be on the screen. Numbers chapter 11. Now, if you read Numbers, sometimes, quite frankly, there are some chapters in Numbers that have so many numbers that they, it just kind of gets boring. I got to tell you, the numbers we're going to see today, they're, they're, they are so exciting because they, they, they give us a picture that, ex, that I'm hoping will expand whatever concept you might have of God. God does that from time to time. It's, not, it's a bigger, it's a, it's a lot bigger than, I'm a lot bigger than you think. You might remember the story that now Moses is leading these millions, uh, this group of millions of people. And they're out in the wilderness because of some moronic behavior on part of some of the God's people. And now they're out about 40 years out in this wilderness, out in this barren place, just going from place to place to place to place, kind of circling the block, so to speak, until they reach their destination in God's timing, which is called Canaan or the promised land. Now, let's just imagine you're God for a second. And now you got to take care because you are our father, and now you got to take care of your children for 40 years out in the middle of nowhere. Key question, how are you going to feed them? I mean, my wife frets over, ah, what are we going to do for dinner tonight? And there's just two of us. Well, three and counting myself, but there's only two kids. Just what are we, how are we going to feed every day three squares with two, 2.5 million people for four decades. How are you going to do that? So God said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to rain this stuff down from heaven that's called manna. It's kind of like these wafer-like materials. And, and some of you might say, oh, come on. That, that really? Well, see, here's the deal. If you begin to believe who God is, that God, let's say, created the sun. Now, just last week, I was creating a sun. It was going pretty good. Of course not. If you buy into the first page of the Bible, everything after that is downhill. This is the God who created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created the sun, the moon, our skin, our eyelashes, grasshoppers, and kangaroos. He's the guy that created nitrogen that we need. He created plants. He created little creepy crawly bugs that take care of the plants and eat. He created bats and snakes and all of those things. He created it all. Wafers from heaven. Not a problem. All the miracles compared to the first page of the Bible are really nothing if you think of a God who created something out of nothing. So if don't trip over the miracles of the Bible if you really understand and believe who God truly is. So they're out in the wilderness. God is now feeding them every single day with these wafers that rain down. They're to collect them and they're to eat them. Now the folks that came with the Israelites, they haven't probably bought in as much as the Israelites, God's people. And they begin to complain. Their palates 
are more sophisticated. They're looking for a higher level of cuisine, and we've now reached their culinary capacity. <laughs> they begin to moan and groan and make uh, havoc, wreak havoc over the whole community. What's up with this manna? I can't wrap my head around it. I'm tired of eating it every day of my life. And now they begin to create some problems. Numbers chapter 11 and verse 4. And I love this word that is, describes this group of people. I looked in different versions because I'm like, that's a, that's a strange word. But nearly every version used this word. And the word is rabble. I, I've heard of rebel, uh, Barney Rubble, uh, but never rabble. And, and the rabble and the King James, is, it's M-I-X-T, the mixed company. In other words, they were the folks, like we read in Exodus 12, that came along with these other, and they started the trouble. So we begin in Exodus or Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. The rabble with them. That's how we know it wasn't the Israelites. They were with the Israelites. The rabble. It's even kind of fun to say, you rabble. As you kind of, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And the Israelites were drawn into it. They also started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Of course it was no cost, you moron. You were a slave. Isn't it amazing how we go back to things that were broken? We face it all the time in church as church leaders. Hey, now, we were in this system and, and previous church. Now, it didn't work, and uh, it fell apart. There was no productivity at all, no really great spiritual income, no disciples were being making. But, hey, would you guys do the same thing? Like, really? We want to go back to a broken system? It's stunning. That they look, they, they're saying, man, we had meat at no cost back then. Yeah, but the conditions were absolutely horrific. And so they said, we, we remember not only did we have meat at fish at no cost, but man, you remember those English cucumbers with no seeds in them? Ah, they were tasty. And those melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, but now we've lost our appetite because we never see anything. Except this manna. In other words, we can't wrap our intellect around this plan. And by golly, I'm getting pretty tired of it. Ever been there? You see, God had a plan. But they just couldn't see it from where they were playing. Now think about this for a second. They had this large drove of cattle and sheep. How come they didn't kill them? How come they didn't eat them? You know why? Human beings cannot live on meat alone. You know, we need, you know, the tri triangle thing, the pyramid deal. You need, you know, some, some grains. You need some veggies in there, fruit. Uh, you need monster drink thrown in there somewhere, <laughs> something like that, right? Now, we need those things. So I'm going to take a stab at something. Don't forget, this is not a deity who art in heaven. It's a father. Not only is it a father, it's a creator who made our bodies, how do you sustain human beings, a lot of them, in the wilderness? They certainly can't grow anything where they were. It was barren. It was desolate. Plus, they're moving around all the time. You can't plant corn and wait around for it. We're moving on to the next spot. In other words, we're in a predicament. So let me just take a stab at something. Here's my guess, my assumption. 
that that manna was full of nutrients. It wasn't communion wafers. It wasn't saltines. Or you remember the little ones? I was in the Baptist church a dozen years. You know, the little ones where we call Baptist chiclets. Remember that? It wasn't that, right? It was, it was something that God sustained them. How do you know that, Steve? Because they stayed alive. He didn't feed them with just wafers, saltines. Who could have been sustained? And if had they killed the animals, they would have run out. Then they would have been up the tree. God, our Father in heaven, who art in heaven, came up with a plan and said, even though you don't, you're missing the plan, I know you're tired of this, there is a great reason why I'm doing it. Now, that's just me taking a stab. There was a greater reason that God had, and they couldn't wrap their intellect around it. They couldn't see it because they weren't up in the booth. The book of Deuteronomy is like a post-game book for us. In other words, it's looking back. Moses looking back and says, let me tell you what was going on there. The book of Deuteronomy is is wonderful. And Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses, God through Moses, revisits this moment. And he says, you know all that, that fuss about the manna and everything? There was a plan there. You see, you might have thought that I had just hit the automatic button on the manna machine. And I, I oh, man, I forgot. <laughs> oh, manna every day. I, I've been at it here for 37 years. And I, I forgot you guys were eating manna. Uh, silly me. As if God were, were to say that. Now, as funny as that might seem, aren't there times in your life where you say to yourself, Has God fallen asleep? This is not making sense right now. I can't wrap my mind around why this is happening right now. And it's and I can't figure it out because I've reached my human limitation of my own intellect. We all experience that, do we not? This was a moment where they couldn't get it. Now, Moses... And Deuteronomy 8 says, let me give you a post game. Watch this in verse 3. In this moment, Moses said, God had a plan. And here's how it starts. He humbled you. He humbled you. He had directly, and this was all part of his plan. Because you only thought that your need was exterior. I need food, I need meat, I need fish and cucumbers. He said, oh, no, 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 no. The greater need was interior. The greater need was for me to do something in you. And he goes on, let me tell you what. He said, I put you in a lab. We talk about labs a lot here at 360 because labs cause us to grow. You can't learn some things in a textbook. You got to get in the science lab and blow a few things up before you. Oh, I get it. Now you mix those two and the thing blows up. And so he says, look, here's what happened. He humbled you during this time, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna. This is why I fast from time to time. It's good for your body, by the way. It's good for your blood system, but it's good for your spiritual system because it reminds you like, wow, without food, I'm over and I get everything from God. It's just, it is an, it is a thing that God challenged us to do. It's difficult But if you're able physically, I encourage you to do it because it teaches you this dependence on God. And what was he he was saying here is like you there was nowhere on the playing field that you could have gotten food that would have sustained you for so long. So I had to bring it down from heaven because I wanted you to know that there is a father who is in heaven, not on earth, 
who operates from heaven and you're umbilically tied to him. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. You never heard of this before. And I did it to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So you'll understand without a shadow of a doubt, our father who art in heaven. Christ begins with this framing of this prayer so that you know that when you come into prayer, you're saying, God, I am absolutely dependent on you even when I can't understand what's going on with my intellect. Just a few verses later, in verse 16, in the same chapter of Deuteronomy 8, he says, again, he gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known. Watch to humble you and to test you so that in the end it might go well for you. That's the father part. Even when things are going tough, man, I'm for you because this is going to be good for you. Because, see, they could not see the massive playing field that thousands of years later, hundreds of years later, there would be one who stood on the earth that said, let me teach you the depth of the manna, that I am the bread of life. That was all part of the scheme of the manna. So that Christ in that moment could look back and say, hey boys, you remember when you were out there griping about the manna? There was a much bigger picture than you could ever see. I was not asleep at the will. I was in the booth seeing the massive field from beginning to end. I find that pretty darn cool. PDC. Even when we can't see it, our Father who art in the booth... Up in the section who sees the entire timeline. You see, the precision of this story is amazing. The, let me just give you some numbers. I, man, I, there are times I come into Sunday and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to share these numbers. Can't wait to share the word of God because it elevates us. We need elevating at times because we get stuck. We get grass stains, don't we? We get mud, we get scars, we get blood, we get hurt, we get broken ankles, we get all those things. They kind of pull us down into an earthly mindset. And the word of God at times says, oh no, it's bigger than that. See that over there? It fit way over here. Now see, Moses comes along the train about five generations way into it. See, there was a man named Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 15, God says to Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. But let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. They're going to be held captive for about 400 years. You can read it in Genesis chapter 15. Now, 400 years. Now, that's before Israel was a nation. It was before they had traveled to Egypt. Before all these things before. He says, you're going to tell Abraham. That was way before Abraham had a son named Isaac. And that was way before Isaac had a son named uh, Jacob. And that was way before Jacob had a son named Joseph. So he's talking, hey, uh, just by the way, Abraham, your great, great grandson or ever how that rolls, generations ahead of you, here's what's going to happen. See, God saw the whole playing field all at once. 400 years. See, it's going to happen. And they're going to find them over here and they're going to be in Canaan. And then uh, Joseph's going to get sold off by his brothers. Can you imagine God talking to you this fast? And here's what's going to happen. Joseph's going to go in there. And then Jacob's going to come down. And now they're going to be plushman. And they're going to forget about them. They're going to be there 400 years. And they're going to be slaves. Can you imagine that? We can't even handle the sound bites of God. It's so big. But it wasn't random. We're told in Galatians chapter 4 that they were there 400, they were treated poorly 430 years. Wait a minute, I thought he told Abraham 
400 years. Well, see, here's the deal. We're told in, 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 throughout the Old Testament, and particularly in the book of Genesis, at the end of Genesis, beginning in the book of Exodus, that it took a generation for the people of Egypt to forget what happened to Joseph and who he was. That's about 30 years, by the way. This whole thing was mapped out to the day. Now, I can tell that some of you are not motivated yet. You need more numbers. So watch this. Are you ready? Put your seatbelt on. Here we go. This whole thing with the manna, God was not asleep at the will. Even when we couldn't wrap our, when they couldn't wrap our mind around it. When God is, when you can't wrap your mind around what's going on, God is still in the very, very nth degree of details. God promised them that their destination was Canaan, the promised land. And you might remember from the stories when they spent, sent, sent spies over there. It's like, ah, oh, man, the land's awesome. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You remember that? But they, he said, the produce is off the chart. It, and, and it doesn't have steroids in it either. It's pretty cool. It's organic. And it's, and, and it's just, the grapes are big. You remember. So when you get, that's our destination. God did not forget that. But during this time, he had to keep them alive through this nutritious stuff called manna. Now watch this. I find this stunning in the book of Joshua chapter 5. This is so exciting. You thought numbers in the Bible were boring. Mm-mm. Nuh-uh. They're, they're exciting. Watch this. Joshua chapter 5. Now, keep in mind the timeline. Moses has now died. The new CEO, his name is Joshua. And now Joshua is bringing them into the destination that Moses himself never reached, the promised land. Now they're in the promised land. They're getting ready to step foot in the promised land. Now they've been eating this manna. Well, these people are griping about it here in Numbers 11. Now they've been eating it now for 40 years. Are you ready for this? Watch this. The Lord said to Joshua, now we're in new chapter, new land, promised land. And today... I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Can you imagine? I get chill bumps. I literally just got chill bumps. Just thinking about that. That moment in history where we've been out here for 40 years. Joshua is the one that started with him. Him and Caleb are the only one that survived all 40 years. He's been out here for 40 years. And God says, today, son, I'm rolling away the reproach of Egypt. And you're going to set your foot On the ground that we've been aiming for, the promised land. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day, which means rolled away. Verse 10, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, exactly. While camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, and God's trying to rub it in here, that very detailed day on God's iCal, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the new land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. God was right on schedule. Our Father who art in heaven, even when it doesn't make sense. You see it? You know what I get? (laughs) Jiggly. 
Because every single one of us have chapters in our life where we can't wrap our minds around it. But Moses teaches us today that God has not fallen asleep even when it's beyond your intellectual capacity. Today, my mom is in the house. My mom is the most faithful uh, attender of church. Church has been our life since two years old. We Even when we, we used to live in Virginia, when we go on vacation, uh, we would go, even on vacation, they would take us to church. I've been mean to tell you something here for these all these years. That really ticked me off. No, okay. <laughs> Many of you know she's been on a, a, a tough road here in the last uh, couple months. If you're new, that's why people are applauding. She had brain surgery and uh, successfully made it th- through that. So thankful for a doctor right here in our midst that steered her in such a marvelous way, laid hands on her and prayed. What neurologist does that these days, honestly? So if you're in the house today, thank you, by the way. Um, So I'm going to tell a story that was a painful chapter in our lives. 2001, uh, my wife and I moved here, and then my parents joined us. Some of you know this part of our history. My parents moved here two weeks and, and uh, in 2001, 2001 was a significant year for them. They uh, had celebrated their 50th anniversary on March 5th of 2001. And uh, my brother and I bought them 50 gifts. It's like 50 toothpicks. That's pretty cool. No, I'm just kidding. Not 50 toothpicks. But little gifts, you know, tickets to movies and things like that. And unfortunately, in the same year, that was March 5th, on Halloween night of 2001, they were in a car accident, and we lost my father. My mom was in the car. Her neck was severely broken, and uh, she was holding on by a thread. And uh, before that had happened, before they moved here, they had bought a plot of land to build a home. And there had already been a foundation laid uh, a slab of cement was there and all the pipes were sticking out and, and whatnot. And not knowing, because we're on the playing field, my wife and I bought just eight houses away from them. There was an empty land there and it was a good deal and we, we bought it and our, we had to wait a while because we were, you know, pecking order. We were down on the pecking order. But they had already laid this foundation for my mom's home. On Halloween night, the accident happened and my mom was in the car, broke her neck, had a number of operations here, major operations in Sarasota, and they kept failing, and she almost kept losing her life. And finally, the orthopedic surgeon here was humble enough and wise enough to say, I have reached my capacity of my skill set, but there is a master surgeon in Miami at the University of Miami. So they put her in an ambulance, and they shipped her off to Miami. And she was in... Uh, rehab and hospitals for about a year and a half or so, something like that. So she asked us, my brother and I, what do I do with the house now? It's a foundation. It's a, it's a piece of, that was going to be our retirement home. And, and so what do we do? My brother and I said, well, you know, your, your anniversary is on March 1st or 5th, March 5th of this year. 
and it was your 50th anniversary, and Dad's taking care of a, a good portion of this house financially and whatnot. We would ask you to look at this house as Dad's final gift to you. That he would provide that, okay? Then we'll go with that. So my brother and I, we handled all the details with the builder, and it's always crazy. And a lot of times when you're building a home or anything, you're trying to push the builders, right? Hey, we're, we're trying to get in. We didn't care because we knew mom would be not there for quite a while. And so we said to the builders, you know, we'll check in, see how things are going. But you take your time. I know you have other houses to build in this, in this uh, neighborhood. So, you, you know, you go ahead and take your time. So finally they called us. And they said, hey, we're ready to close. I'm like, oh, we're like, okay. Well, what they asked us, Mr. McCoy, what date would you like to close? And we're like, we don't, we don't care. You, you just pick the date. Now, during this time, our church was going through something horrific. And that's an understatement. And in our minds, if we were to pick, in our intellect, if we were to pick now, this would be the absolute worst time. Now, there, there's a... It's never a good time for a traumatic tragedy. But if you could pick a time right here on this calendar, this would be the absolute worst time in my entire life to this day. And that's when it happened. And there are moments that it's okay to say, God, I ain't getting this. I'm not getting this. And are you aware? Have you ever been to that gut-wrenching place where you've reached your intellectual capacity that you can no longer wrap your mind around it? And say, are you aware, God? Just let me know that you're aware of the deepness, of the depth, of the pain that we're all going through right now. The builder calls and said, hey, we're ready to close on this last gift from your father to your mom. What date, Mr. McCoy, would you like to close? And we're like, we, we don't care, man. You, you just pick a date. He's looking at his calendar. He goes, all right, how about March 5th? The date of my parents' anniversary. See, there's moments that God gives to us that he's saying, I'm not necessarily going to change the circumstance, but I am going to let you know that there is a father who art in heaven, and I'm fully engaged to teach Christians that these things don't happen to us is a farce. They're unbiblical. It's not right. Things like this, tragedies, traumas are going to happen. But God is here today saying to us, you have not only someone in heaven, but you got a father who's looking down and sees the whole thing. I love him. I love him. Because he's there. Giving us just these little moments. That he says, oh, let me tell you what the manna was all about. It was so much bigger than making sure you had three squares a day. You get it? I need that. How about you? Not only that. But there are sometimes, probably more than intellectually, uh, intellectual capacity. I reach an emotional capacity. Breaking news. You don't want to be around me when I've reached that. And I'm going to guess I don't want to be around you. 
You know what I mean? The, the old Popeye moment where I can't stand it no more. I mean, just one more brick on my load and I'm going to drive the truck right over the cliff. You know what I'm talking about? Those moments. Now, here's Moses doing the best he can do. And these this rabble begins to complain about these nutritious mills, mills on wheels that God's delivering here. You know what I'm saying? And he prays, Moses begins to pray what I call the pastor's prayer. Now, you might think the pastor's prayer would go something like this. Oh, great shepherd in heaven, look upon me, thy servant shepherd, as I shepherd thy loving flock. Nope, didn't quite go that way. This is where Moses teaches us that it's okay to be honest because God knows our thoughts even before they're on our lips, right? So there's no use to saying, man, I'm aggravated. So as the pastor of the flock, this is what your brother Moses prayed that day in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 11 after the rabble rabbled on. He asked the Lord, why have you bought brought this trouble on your servant? Well, great way to start a prayer. What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on my... Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? He's starting to get an attitude. Can you tell? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to a land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing at me. Give us meat. Can you hear? It's kind of like dramatizing the thing. God, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. I've reached an emotional capacity. I love the Bible because it ain't playing around. It's honest. With honest people, just like you and me, it's not full of LeBron James' skill set. Otherwise, it would make us feel awful. This guy's being honest. Now he says in verse 15, if this is how you're going to treat me, God, boy, he's going to the top. Put me to death right now if I've found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. You know, I have prayed that prayer minus the put me to death part. Because I'm just afraid of God like, okie doke, clank. Now we're moving on to someone else. It's a scary prayer. He has reached an emotional level. Now listen carefully. We believe in this church in counseling. I think counseling is wonderful. We have a wonderful uh, a couple of counselors that we, we use here at 360. All for it. We read books. I read a lot of books. I could say, hey, your marriage is in trouble. Let's start by you reading this. We believe in that. You know, if you've been around any certain amount of time, we believe in what we call a small circle, one-to-one, people helping one another. But may I say we need to be careful in this vision that we do not make God exempt from the plan because we are fellow players on the field. And what happens in this moment is we have to reach not to one another when we've reached our emotional capacity only, but we have to reach higher to the one who art in heaven. Because why? Because only God can work from the inside out. You're from the outside in. Only God can work from the inside out supernaturally. I was with someone a couple weeks ago. 
And I asked him, I said, on the scale from one to a hundred of the things that you're going through, the angst that you have right now, have you reached out to anybody else? Yeah, I've reached out to this person, this person. Okay, cool. On a scale from one to a hundred, 100 being like, man, you have gone in your closet and you've prayed the Mo prayer here, Moses prayer. I mean, you've let it rip. God, I can't take it. I need you. That, that level, that's a hundred. On the scale from one to a hundred, one being like, mm, I'm probably not going to pray at all. He said about 10. And I think that's where we find most people, about 10. That somehow God is the last resort. So God does something in this moment after Moses is honest. Aren't you glad that God didn't say to Moses, how dare you talk to me like that, son? Who do you think you're talking to? You know why? Because he's our father. He loves us as a father. He understands because he made us. He understands that we have an emotional limitation. He's a, whoa, Moses over the top, man. I got to send help from the top from the inside out. So watch what he does. It's beautiful. Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, here's what we're going to do, Mo. Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. And I'll put deputy badges on them and then we're good to go. He said, no, that wouldn't help. I just didn't bring you 70 people. I'm going to do something, Moses, to help you expand your emotional capacity. I'm going to work from the inside out. He says this as God, our Father, so often does. I will come down. Oh, there it is. Our Father who art in heaven, comma, but the one who's willing to come down like he did through Christ. What a fatherly moment where God says, Moses, I got you. <laughs> I hear you. Oh, I've had so many moments like that. I've had so many moments like that. I am not the LeBron James of emotional capacity. Where fa the Father says, I got it. I'll come down. I'll come down and I'll speak with you there. I'll take of the spirit that is on you and I'll share that spirit and put it on them. And they will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. This is a message of our father who art in heaven when you've reached your emotional capacity. Paul spoke of it in Philippians chapter 4. He said, go to prayer in everything, not after everything. That's how we do. Once it gets better, I'm going. But during it, isn't it tough to go to prayer? It's the last place we want to go. But Paul said this in Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious. Don't be freaked out about anything, about anything. That's hard to do. I, I'm like, wow, I, I have I failed on that one. Don't be anxious about everything, but not for everything, but in everything, every, whatever it is you're going through by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Even if they're the Moses prayer. Hey, I can't take this no more. Even if it's that level. Watch this. And the peace of God, here it is, which transcends all intellect, understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God says, would you give it to me? I can't tell you how many times I've been in my closet praying the Moses prayer. I can't take it anymore. Supernaturally, usually for me, it's after 20 or 30 minutes. It might be after 20 seconds. I'm a little slow for you. Uh, you might be 20 seconds for you. I'm, I'm slower. Honestly, about 20 or 30 minutes in, something takes over and uh, not something, someone. And, and, and the spirit of God begins to bring a peace that, it, that I can't buy it. And Barnes and Noble, I can't get it from a counselor. I can't get it from any of you, any of my friends, the closest person I know on earth. He cannot work any of that work from the inside out. But the spirit of God brings a peace in the midst of everything that says, okay, there is a father in heaven who offers a solution that's higher than I could find on the playing field. Does it make sense? Finally, let me close with our spiritual, our spiritual capacity. Some of you may be sitting there like, okay, sounds good, but I have a little time, hard time buying in. It's a belief capacity. I'm trying to, I'm trying to believe it. I'm trying to see it, but um, they're, 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 I, I've got a, I got a capacity here to believe that God could really care enough to do all these things. It happened with Moses because see, God came to Moses and he said, here's the deal. I got a new game plan, Mo. I am going to send enough meat for these people, 2.5 million people for a month. Now, I know some of you like to have people over at Thanksgiving. I've seen people that invite people over to Thanksgiving. They always seem nervous, like Martha. Like, man, i got 12 people. You don't want to burn the, you know, scorch the Brussels sprouts. And you, you know how it is. I mean, it's tough to have a dozen people over your house for Thanksgiving. You're trying to get it all right and all together because they're going to be here in you know, half an hour. You know how that goes. I've just seen, I'm like, you know what I love to do on Thanksgiving? Fix a sandwich. Right, can we just relax and have a holiday? I know I've just like burst a lot of your bubbles, but, but let's just keep it easy. We, we keep it super simple in our, in our home on Thanksgiving, but I know a lot of you, but I just want you to imagine for a second. Let's say Thanksgiving dinner, you had mm, 2.5 million people. <laughs> Not only that, God says, you know what? I'm not going to, I didn't, I said meat, but let me just be distinct. I, I'm not sending chicken. I'm not going to send goat. We're going to go way beyond burgers. I'm going to send quail. You see, quail, I usually don't see quail on the menu in places that I eat. I, I have not seen the McQuail burger. Uh, they, I haven't, have you? Like quail ribs, usually for me it's like pig ribs, pork ribs, something like that. God said, let me do it all out for you. I'm going to go high quality here. We're going to do quail. And I'm going to send so many of them that it's going to feed this whole bunch of 2.5 million for a whole month. Perhaps your God is too small for your belief capacity. It's not uncommon. It wasn't uncommon for LeBron Moses here. You know what he said back to God after that plan? Moses said, now he's really got a smart aleck attitude. I, I love this guy. He gives us permission to be honest with God. And so now Moses begins to pray um, here in, in uh, verse 21 in Numbers 11. But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 footmen. You know, he probably, you know, does his head like that. Hey, God, you know, you know, when somebody does that, they're like, they're going to, they're going to lambase you. So here I am among 600,000 men on foot. And you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. You're probably dramatizing that as well. 
Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? I'm looking out at these large droves here, God. And if we killed all of them, it wouldn't be enough. And it certainly wouldn't sustain us for a whole month. We're going to run out of burgers. And you're saying you're going to send meat for a whole month. And then he goes on. Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Now he's just over the top. And God says, I get it. Because see, even when we want to believe God, you remember the guy that came to, to, to Christ and his, his child was demon possessed. And he comes and he begins to ask questions. And, he, and he's telling Jesus in Mark 9, from childhood, it is often, this demon has often thrown this child into fire or water to kill him. But Jesus, if you can do anything, you see, he minimized who Christ really was. You know, if you have it in your skill set, I know you created the world and everything, but my, my marriage, see, is bigger than all that stuff. God, if you, I, I know that you part of the Red Sea, but our finances, I know, I don't know if you know Excel, God, uh, QuickBooks, because we do, and I'm sure, you know. See, he's saying to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Watch Jesus' response. Whoa, 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 whoa. You ever gotten one of those responses from God? Did you say, if you can? Don't you love the honesty? Jesus saying, did you say, if you can? That's when you go, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I did. I'm pretty sure I did say, if you can. Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the father was honest. The boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. But help me with my unbelief. It's okay to say to God, I'm trying to believe here. Not that the circumstances are, but that you're part here. That you are in charge, that you're with me and all those things. I just need to see that. And so God responds to Moses when he does his little smart aleck prayer. And he says, the Lord answered Moses in verse 23. Is the the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Now, let me tell you, as we close, a little bit of lesson about quail. Quail can't fly very long. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that until I started studying a little bit about quail this week. They can't fly long. They're not long flight birds like geese or, or other birds that fly long. That's all I know. <laughs> Sparrows, they fly long. I don't know what bird flies long. There's some long flying birds, I'm telling you. But they can't fly very long. Usually they, they, uh, they hang out by water, as you'll see here in just a second. They hang out by water. When this happened, God, uh, Moses and his people were 50 miles from the nearest body of water where the quail lived. 50 miles. No quail can fly 50 miles. No quail can fly 50 miles. See, we set limitations on God about what we can see. Not only that, when quail hang out, people that study quail, they're quailologists, I guess, I don't know. They say they usually, maximum, there's 10,000 that hang out. Well, see, that's not going to cut it for 2.5 million people. This is where the numbers get exciting. God said, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to fly them in. I'm going to fly them in. Watch this. Numbers 1131. Is the the arm of the Lord too short? He's about to answer that. Now, see, a wind 
went out from the Lord. He created a wind channel. You know, I was just doing that the last Thursday. I thought, hey, let me create a, a wind channel. That's within my capacity, really. God does things we can't. God is not subject to the limitations of this earth. And God created a wind channel. And he drove the quail in from the sea and it brought them down around the camp to about three feet above the ground as far as a day's walk in any direction. People that have figured this number out, you know what it is? 700 square miles. Sarasota's land mass is 550 plus a few square miles, including the water. It's 725 square miles. All of Sarasota, including the water, was full of three, um, th- three feet of quail. God said, oh, really? Let me take care of you. Now, later in this chapter, we're told that each person got no less than 10 homers of quail. Insert Homer Simpson joke right now. Just kidding. <laughs> a homer is about 60, liter, uh, uh, 60 bushels or about 200 liters minimum per person. Now, those who figured this out said they figured out how many person, how many quail per person times 600,000 footmen. And I've added some. And the total number of quail that flew 50 miles that day was somewhere roughly between 300 and 500 million. Perhaps we need to go to God and say, help me with my unbelief because I have miniaturized God. And Christ said, when you go to pray, think big. Your God is in heaven He sees everything beyond your human capacity. We close today with something, a word from A.W. Tozer. It's a heavy word. Every word from A.W. Tozer is heavy. And he says these words as we close. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is not this is true not only for the individual Christian but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Our Father, our great Father, who thankfully art in heaven. God, we're so thankful today. For the honesty of scripture. Thank you that there's not some made up version. Of Moses's response. Thank you God that he was willing enough. To be transparent. As he reached his. Intellectual and emotional and spiritual capacity. It makes us feel okay, God, because each of us have a limit. There are times where things are happening in our life that for the life of us, God, as you know, we cannot wrap our our mind around it. And we begin to wonder, quite frankly, 
if you're in tune. It's in these moments, God, that we're assured by you that not only are you in tune, but you're very in tune. There's nowhere in Scripture that you promise to change circumstances all the time. Sometimes you do. But there is something you have promised, God, a peace that transcends all human capacity to understand. You've promised, God, your companionship, your awareness in everything. You've promised us, God, to respond as a loving father to our honest exhaustion. So, God, we're thankful today, so deeply thankful that we're not left as human beings here on earth as a science project that began with a big bang. But we are umbilically attached to a heavenly Father whose ways are higher than our ways, who loves us enough to keep with us, to even put us in labs, whatever they may be, God, so that we can understand fully why we're here on earth. So God, teach us today, first of all, to be transparent in prayer, prayer that we have the license to do so, that you're a big boy, that you can take our honesty because it already resides in our hearts. But teach us, God, that you're able to expand our capacity from the inside out and enlarge, God, our understanding of who you are. Without a doubt, God, every single one of us, either consciously or subconsciously, intentionally or inadvertently, God, we've miniaturized you for sure because we're human. God, so take the words today and the experiences that we've learned about and enlarge our view and our picture of who you are. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, we're so grateful. In Christ's name, amen.